We have the privilege of turning to God's Word again this morning in the New Testament. Um, Occasionally, I will go to the church website um, and listen to a past sermon, maybe watch the YouTube video of a past sermon. Not the whole thing, typically, uh, but just a few minutes to um, hear myself and to uh, what, what it is I sound like and the mannerisms that I use, how I talk with my hands almost more than I do with my mouth. Um, but it's a good thing to evaluate every now and then as to how, how what's being communicated, how is it being communicated, what is being heard. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to, to open to an example of what a, an early Christian sermon may have looked like, may have sounded like. Um, when we turn to Hebrews in the New Testament, we don't find what we would expect from a New Testament letter. Um, and, uh, a greeting, uh, we don't know who, uh, who, this, uh, uh, who is writing this, we don't know the audience specifically, the author is addressing, There's, uh, there is a closing blessing that we find, but um, this seems to be more like a sermon than an actual uh, letter. Uh, by a very concerned pastor, uh, may have been one of the apostles, we don't, we don't know that for sure, who understands his audience extremely well. Um, again, we don't know the exact audience, but um, the emphasis that's placed on the Old Testament and the use of the Old Testament was very familiar to this uh, audience, um, at least old, old Covenant, Old Testament history of Israel. Uh, and so it's, they may have been in the vicinity of Rome. There's a lot of indicators that, that show that. Maybe banished uh, from Rome by the emperor. Now they are meeting in uh, smaller house churches, wondering what comes next as followers of the Lord Jesus. Um, so we're going to read just the first four verses this morning, considered the, the prologue of this sermon, and just about everything else that we hear from 1 verse 5 through the end of the sermon is going to elaborate on what we find here in the first uh, four verses. So envision a small church. Maybe smaller than what we have here in this room, 10 to 20 people. Some are sitting, some are standing against the wall, and this is what uh, they hear. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's holy and enduring word. Let's pray together. Lord God, what a a grand opening and proclamation of who this Jesus is, of who your Son, the living Christ, is. Lord, words perhaps that we've read before, processed before, thought about, maybe words that we haven't heard in a very long time. And so Lord, we ask that you would illumine our hearts now by the power of your Holy Spirit that this reading and this hearing of your word would implant itself in our hearts and in our minds, that we would rightly 
interpret and apply this word to our lives. We cannot do this apart from your help. And so we entrust this time to you, Lord. Pray for the the right handling of your word. Speak faithfully through your servant. Make us attentive now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Johnny was five years old. He skipped into the, the kitchen and he wanted to help his mother with supper preparations. Mommy, what can I do to help? And so she looked around and said, well, you know, Johnny, if you want to help, why don't you go to the pantry and and grab one of the cans of tomato soup and bring that over here. That would be a big help. Mommy, I don't want to go to the pantry. It's dark. It's scary in there. I can't do that. Sure you can, Johnny. I know you can. It's just right over there. You can get the can of soup. You know where it is. Bring that to me. No, I can't do that. And so mom turns to Johnny and says, okay, Johnny, Jesus will be with you in the pantry. You can do this. And so he timidly makes his way to the pantry, opens the door a little bit, and then closes it. Opens the door a little bit, closes it. And finally, he gets up enough courage and he cracks open the pantry door and says, Jesus, if you're in there, can you hand me a can of tomato soup? Um, Johnny was scared. He was fearful. He needed Jesus to help. Even called out for him. And so the young church that that is hearing this message, this young church is fearful. They're scared. They're wondering, is Jesus really there? Is he he in a position to actually help them? And if they have been kicked out of Rome, then they're, they're marked out as Christians. They know persecution perhaps firsthand either from governing authorities, maybe from family, friends. The cost of being associated with Jesus is high. Um, And there's going to be that that pull, um, a strong pull to take the easier path, uh, if not abandoned this way altogether. Um, We've been following Christian and hopeful on their their journey this last um, season in, in Pilgrim's Progress in our Sunday school. You remember, they went, they went down Bypath Meadow. It looked much easier, much less opposition, only to end in disaster for them. So I don't think it's difficult for us to put ourselves in the place of this small house church, listening to these words with some hesitation, some doubts, some fears. Is following Jesus worth the sacrifice? Is his sacrifice as powerful and sufficient as we've been told? And when we're faced with unbelief and we're faced with doubts in our own hearts, maybe we're we're on the receiving end of scorn and opposition. The temptation is to usually soften our allegiance or abandon altogether. There was a time when being a Christian here in America, that was considered normal, um, at least culturally acceptable. It really wasn't too many decades ago when when people would either identify themselves as Christians or at least be agreeable to what the Christian worldview uh, proclaims. Um, That time is gone in our land. And I know that's hard to believe, maybe hard to accept because of the, the circles that we have um, but it's gone. 
Uh, there's a growing stigma now associated with Jesus. Christians are considered old-fashioned, bigoted, on the wrong side of history, um, even hateful. So it was easy for Roman leadership at this time that this was written to point fingers at Christians, blame them for the ills of the city and the culture. It's growing much easier for those whose hearts are hardened to, to point fingers here, now, and blame Christians. And let's be honest, sometimes that blame is justified. When Christians get ugly and mean and betray Christ in their words and their actions, but a lot of the time, it's the offense of the gospel. And those who are trying to live out the gospel faithfully, that is a stench in the nostril of the unbeliever. So the cost of discipleship is high. I think one of my favorite conversation partners, even though we've just started Hebrews, is going to be uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Both his life and his experience on writing on the cost of discipleship. He understood this along with many of our brothers and sisters that we've prayed for already this morning. Um, they understand this cost, perhaps at a different level than we do. To share in the sufferings of Christ may very well mean loss of livelihood and loss of one's life. So what do these Christians need to hear if they're feeling this pressure of persecution, uh, if they're fearful, um, they need to hear, we need to hear, and we need to see Jesus firmly fixed before our eyes. We're going to read language just like that in chapter 12. But we need to, to see Christ, we need that solid footing as we take one step after the next on this faith journey. So the author knows this. He opens with Jesus as this superior final word because He is the Son of God. So those are the two main points that you can scribble in bold this morning. Jesus is the superior and final word because He is the living Son of God. And so verse 1, just about as incredible as Genesis 1-1 or John 1 that we've heard already this morning where we hear God speaking. He has spoken in a way that is understandable to us, to those who have gone before us. So in Genesis, this speaking is actually a creative act. He spoke the world into existence. And God spoke to the, the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He spoke through dreams and visions. Speaks directly to Moses, who is considered by the Jews to be the greatest of the prophets. The Creator God wants to be known. And He has made Himself known through uh, speech, words given to the Old Testament prophets. But the very nature of this revelation at different times, different ways, that, that actually tells us that there's an incompleteness to it. When, when will God's people hear from Him again? What is the next word from God? And we, so we see several installments in the Old Testament of this word, but when we get to the New Testament, we have one final installment. Uh, the last days uh, there in verse 2. Uh, these last days have come with the arrival of Jesus. So those listening to this sermon knew that they were in the last days. 
We are living right now in this present evil age that Paul uh, mentions in Galatians 1. It's the age where Jesus reigns. He rules, but we wait for His appearing, His second advent. And so we've been in these last days for 2,000 or more years. And it's here that God has spoken His final and superior word, speaking through His Son. And when we learn some things about this Son... Uh, we know and we're convinced that this is a superior word. That this is the culmination of God's revelation. Um, the Son's not just a spokesman for God, not just one of the prophets. He's the prophet. No one more intimately familiar with God the Father than the Son. And in, in John 1, we hear that Son is the living word. We'll come back to John 1. So if Jesus is the ultimate, the final revelation of God, then His Word cannot be easily pushed to the side or discarded. God has spoken. He wants to be known. He has shown us, disclosed the very truth of humanity, who we are, who He is. He's done this over and over through the course of redemptive history. And now the resurrected Jesus, the Son... He tells a few guys on the road to Emmaus that that history, all of what has been proclaimed before through Moses, through all the other prophets, they were speaking of Him, pointing to Him. So beloved, God has taken the initiative to speak, to show us the way, the truth, and the life in His Word, the living Word, uh, His Son. So consider that we serve and worship a God who speaks. Who reveals Himself to us in all of the created order and uniquely through His Son, the living Word. And it's His authority, His message behind the Word, that every word that you have in that Bible open before you. That's what led the Apostle Peter uh, to say that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Son. The Word is, is exhaled, it's breathed out by God and transcribed through human agency. I know some of you have seen the Mandalorian series, Star Wars series. In the very first episode, uh, Mando, who is a bounty hunter, is searching down the asset and so he, uh, he lands on this planet uh, in his search for this next bounty. And uh, he meets, or actually he's rescued by this alien character named Quill. And Quill's a pretty respectable as far as aliens are concerned. Um, and he offers to, to help Mando because he wants peace on this uh, planet. Uh, Quill is quite mechanically inclined, ends up being a, a great help. Um, but he's also pretty straightforward when he speaks and uh, what has become a very famous line from Quill in this series is after he says something, he just says, I have spoken. And that's it. No more conversation. No more dialogue. Quill has spoken. Um, and Mando, he doesn't really say much after that. He seems to understand the respect and authority that goes along with I have spoken. So in the word before us, not just a Star Wars character. It is God Himself who says, 
I have spoken. This word carries his authority. This word is unchanging. It is relevant for your every day. And this word is held together, unified by a common message from Genesis to Revelation. And those parts from Genesis to Revelation that are difficult for us to read, difficult to understand, we look to other portions of the Scriptures. Those that are a little easier to understand, to help us interpret. Bible is best interpreted by itself because it is the I have spoken of God. What a grace this is. What a privilege to hold the very Word of God by His initiative, by His love for you and me. He's given us His Word. So let the promises of God's Word, let them envelop you. Let this Word assure you of His grace. Assure you of His nearness. God is not out there somewhere else. He is so very near with His people. With you and with me. He is not silent. He indwells us by His Spirit and speaks through this very word. Uh, even, the, even this act that we're participating right now, in the preaching and hearing of the word, God speaks. It's simply amazing. Um, so when questions come like, where is God? Um, how could this happen? Is this something I truly want to, to stand on? Questions that these early Christians may have been asking. Okay, we're reminded that in the, in the story of redemption, it's human beings that run and hide. God doesn't hide. He makes himself known to his people. He does this powerfully through the truth and promises of his word. So Jesus is the superior and final word because he is the living son of God. So in verses 2 through 4, we have this description of the son and I think of like a kaleidoscope being held up to the light. And you turn that kaleidoscope. This, this is what the, the preacher of the Hebrews is doing. He's turning that kaleidoscope for us. And all these colors are blending together and describing that Jesus as eternal, as incarnate, the exalted Son, showing His supreme worth in this revelation. So He's the heir of all things, verse 2. The one through whom God the Father created the world. We've heard in in Colossians 1, For by Him all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through Him and for Him. It's interesting, in Proverbs chapter 8, we read of the personification of wisdom. Wisdom calls out to be found. Uh, wisdom is the one that, that grants an inheritance and filling the treasuries of all those uh, who love her. But then in, in Proverbs 8.22, it says, The Lord possessed me, that is wisdom, at the beginning of His work. The first of His acts of old, ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. So wisdom is associated with God and His creative activity now the prologue here doesn't say that that jesus at least say directly that jesus the son is divine wisdom but it attributes that same activity of creation that's attributed to wisdom to the son so he is the divine wisdom of the jewish tradition 
who creates and sustains the universe. In the beginning was the Word, we've heard in John 1. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this living Word is the eternal Son, the radiance, exact likeness of God's nature and His essence. You can picture that signet ring that's pressed into the wax or another mold that uh, produces an exact representation uh, of the image. So Jesus is the imprint of the Father. And speaking to Philip in John chapter 14, Jesus says to him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the eternal Son. He's also the incarnate Son. Verse 3, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the eternal Son took on flesh and made His dwelling among us. Again, that goes back to John chapter 1. Maybe you're hearing this morning through our, our liturgy, through this word, that John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, kind of the go-to chapters um, that show us both the divinity uh, and the humanity of Jesus. But He took on flesh for a specific purpose, to redeem His people from their sins. He must be incarnate to do this, to be the perfect sacrifice. And so the Son's death and resurrection, they, they result in new life, they result in this purification for all who believe. This priestly work of Jesus, that's what opens the way uh, for us to, to worship, to enter into the presence of the Holy One. And so the sermon to the Hebrews is going to go much more in depth on his high priestly work. The incarnate Son intercedes for us. He's completed that mission. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he sits now exalted at the right hand of the Father. A place of strength, a place of honor and glory. We may have our, our first allusion here to the Psalms. There are many allusions or direct references to the Psalms in this sermon. But in Psalm 2, verse 8, we're going to see verse 7 coming up in the next verse, but the um, next verse of Hebrews. But in 2, verse 8, Psalm 2, that is, we hear this decree from the Lord to the Son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So the Son is exalted. He rules over all nations. His, his kingly rule extends to all the earth. There's a Dutch theologian and statesman, uh, Abraham Kuyper, who's also Prime Minister of the Netherlands for a few years. He said, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. Every square inch. He reigns. He rules. He's the exalted Son. What does it mean in verse 4? says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the common interpretation was that angels were the ones who delivered the law to Moses in the Old Testament. He was an angel that spoke to Moses through um, the burning bush in Exodus 3. Uh, the author even uses this type of language in the next chapter. Um, so the prophets are mentioned as human spokesmen of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament revelation. Now, in, and that's in verse 1. And now in verse 4 of this prologue, we find heavenly spokesmen of that same uh, old revelation. 
The point being that God's new revelation through His Son is superior. But is it, is it the name Son that is superior to the angels? Is it the size of the inheritance that's greater than the angels? Again, we find help in the Old Testament. God's promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, uh, as well as uh, language from Psalm 110. 2 Samuel 7, the Lord is speaking to David. He's making a covenant that would extend through the line of David. And so when speaking of David's heir, a son who would be on the throne, this is what the Lord says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Then we go to Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. A few verses later in Psalm 110, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So this is speaking of the Messiah, the anointed one of God that God honors in the, as the heir of David. God himself establishing his throne. So it's the inherited name of Jesus, the son on the throne of David. That is superior to the angels. The rest of this section is going to prove the, the superior, superiority of the son to the angels. So how do we respond to this? To the eternal, incarnate, exalted Son who is that superior and final Word of God. Theologian Charles Hodge recorded in his systematic theology that we are fallen men, ignorant, guilty, polluted, and helpless. We need a Savior who is a prophet to instruct us, a priest to atone and make intercession for us, and a king to rule over us and protect us. So Jesus the Son fulfills those roles, those offices of prophet, priest, and king. That's what really shapes our response to this message. He's the living word, the final spokesman from God, so we must give our attention to his word whether it's sitting right here under the preached word or in your own private study or with the group study, committing it to memory. This is the word that we want and need. The word that feeds our faith, words that directs our path. Jesus is the priest. Again, not just any priest. The high priest who offers the sacrifice and he himself being the sacrifice as atonement for our sins. And he is the king who sits enthroned at the Father's right hand, defeating all of his enemies and thus all of our enemies. He has defeated death itself. That is a victory we must celebrate. That is a king that we, that we must worship, a king that we want to love, a king that we want to serve. And we can do no other because he first loved us. It is a love for Jesus, this prophet, priest, and king. That's what motivates us to put sin to death, church family. Um, just a couple of examples. I love to eat. Now, I know I'm not the only one in this room who can say that. Um, I love to eat, and sometimes I can eat too much to the point where I'm uncomfortable. Um, so to combat gluttony, I need to be reminded that I am not my own, body and soul, and my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, redeemed, purchased by the blood of Jesus, 
And I also need to hear in that moment when I want seconds or thirds that God is not only my deliverer, but he's my provider. The food comes from him and the next meal, wherever that is and whatever it might be, will come from him. So when I believe those things, it, it moves me to love him more than I love the food and I can put the fork down. You could apply this to the lust of the flesh. You can only cage your eyes, only run from the, the allure of pornography if you have a stronger love. A love for Christ and gratitude for the freedom that you now have in union with Jesus. He carried your shame. You belong to Him. How could you now take that body and, and willingly sin against it by what you put in front of your eyes or what it leads you to do? Flee sexual immorality. Certainly won't be easy. But we have a greater love that enables us to either put the phone down, turn off the computer, hit the off button on the TV. Um, the incarnate, eternal, exalted Son is greater and He is worthy of our love and affection. Um, because what we are searching for the most in our sin is actually Jesus. Um, in sin, we are searching for acceptance, we're searching for approval, honor, glory, peace, security, comfort. The list goes on and on. Where do all these things find their end? Where are they ultimately fulfilled? In union with Christ. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Because it's a desire that, it's a heart that desires Him above all. So Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, is the only answer, the only sufficient answer for our salvation. An eternal inheritance from our God and with our God. Now do you hear the importance of this in times of fear? In times of trial? It's what the early church needed to hear. It's what you and I need to hear. Because we can lose everything, but if we know Christ and cling to Christ, then we've lost nothing. The Apostle Paul said he, he suffered the, the loss of all things. Counts it all as, as rubbish. If only he could gain more of Christ, be found in him. So we cannot shift our gaze. We cannot let go of Christ and expect to find any hope and comfort and assurance in this present age. It is Jesus Christ, the living and final word, who saves us to the uttermost. Hallelujah, what a Savior! Hallelujah, what a Savior. I think that's a great way to end every little sermon that comes from this larger sermon of the Hebrews. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise your great and holy name. You have saved us, you have redeemed us through your Son, the prophet, priest, and reigning King Jesus. Oh Lord Jesus, we honor you, give praise to your name on this day as the creator and sustainer of all life. Lord, you have made us for your glory. It's to you that we exist and it is you that we love. Lord, encourage and deepen that love in us this morning. Use this word to capture our hearts afresh that we might worship you with every breath that you give to us. Go before us now that we might walk in obedience to you, our living word. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.